Imagine for a moment you're being asked to establish your AWS cloud presence on behalf of your company, institution, whether it's a government agency or an educational one, however it is that you work. And what would you do to start building that? That was the question that we asked ourselves a few months ago as our theme for what do we want to establish from a guidance perspective for this year at reInvent. If we were each given the opportunity to establish that presence and build a new cloud presence for a firm from scratch, what would we want to think about? What are the capabilities we need? And how do we establish that presence? My name is Sam Almalak. I am worldwide tech leader for Enterprise Greenfield here at AWS. And I have been leading that effort for the last few months to ensure that we have a prescriptive set of guidance that we're launching at reInvent. So I'll walk you through that as we move through this presentation, explaining to you those concepts, how to think about it, the framework around it, the services, and how to put it all together. So that by the end of this, hopefully you have a framework you can work with, as well as some of the services that help you establish that, and the ability to know what questions to ask, whether it's to us, to partners, or even your internal organization. For those of you that have been with us for the last few years, you might have seen a diagram that looks like this. If you haven't, that's okay. Pretend that you didn't see this. But if you have, what you're about to see is our updated guidance to this and replacing it with new things to help you understand and move forward. And if you want to see the presentation on this, it's recorded, it's on YouTube, it's available. But this one builds on that. Generally, we started to think about the idea, what do customers want to do? Why would you use the cloud? And we found that I want to build, they want to build things, deploy products and services, hopefully with some agility, move fast, stay secure. That's a key one, the staying secure part. To do that, they need an environment that's secure and compliant, of course. As you build and grow, it needs to be scalable. And most importantly, at least in my opinion, being adaptable and flexible. Knowing that things will change over time. We'll release new services. I'm sure you've seen a ton of announcements at this reInvent. Security models may change. New tooling may come along. Or a new idea for your business or your institution that you might come up with and you want to execute on. So they need these things because I, need, I might have multiple teams. They might have different levels of isolation, different security controls. What if you're hosting credit card information? or health information. Different parts of the business or the organization might have different processes. And also from a billing perspective, I want to know what this team is spending on something. Or if I'm running a business or a product, how much does it cost me to host it and deploy it versus what I'm making out of it? It can give me that fine granular things. So what I really need is a security boundary, a resource boundary of some kind the ability to have a different set of limits and controls so one user can't affect the other. If I have a rogue, a rogue process running somewhere, will it take up all my Lambda concurrent execution that I can't run anymore? Or something that launches a whole number of instances that takes up every single IP in a VPC, but it happens to be by a team that happens to be located on the other side of the country or the world, but happens to be running within my same environment. And that billing separation. How much am I actually spending for some customers, that may not matter as much because it's a central billing somewhere, but having that visibility and ability to do it. So really what we need is a resource container, not to be confused with that little interview that we saw talking about Docker containers. 
Just the idea of a set of resources together somewhere. And I am sure for many of you, you're doing that on-premise today. Whether it's through VLANs or different racks that are sitting in a different room, you have mechanisms to isolate resources today. And that's what we're looking after, a way to isolate resources, a resource container. In AWS, it happens to be that the implementation, the best implementation we have is an AWS account. So for all intents and purposes, as we talk about a resource container and an AWS account, they are the same thing. And that's the model that we've gone, chosen to go after. Now, some of you familiar with AWS might wonder, well, can I do multiple VPCs? Or do IAM? You can to a certain extent, but you have some gray boundaries. There's things you can't quite protect with just IAM. Or things like what I described with the Lambda concurrent execution. Or launching a whole bunch of instances because I have a stray loop somewhere that takes up every single resource I have that's available so others don't go up. Gets complicated and messy over time, and nobody wants to maintain very long IAM policies, for example. I've seen ones that are hundreds or thousands of lines because they're trying to account for every possibility. It's difficult to track resources down to individual spend, things like transfer charges. And ultimately, you will have people stepping in one another. I can almost guarantee that that will happen. Every example I've mentioned so far is something I've seen in real life with customers, or an escalation that's coming along. We've seen customers accidentally close down their entire account because someone had access that didn't realize what they were doing. That was not a fun conversation or a fun escalation, but it can happen. So we want to make sure those resources are isolated. Now, you may choose to deploy a few things in one account somewhere, and that's okay. But we want you to think through that process and determine what makes sense. We want to present you with the framework and the ideas, as well as the principles that we followed as we came up with this guidance. When I start out, I might have one of these resource containers. Relatively easy to manage. Maybe I have four. I think that number is 16 or eight. Maybe this many. And over time, as I build these, and I need more and more of these, it becomes harder to manage manually or keep an eye on everything that's happening. What happens when I get to this? And now I need to start grouping things. Maybe that's the marketing team at the lower left, or that's our finance, or there's our product management team. Or maybe I have some shared services. Maybe my central directory or DNS or other things that I have within my organization. Or there's probably some things I'm gonna retire. How do I account for those? So really what we need is an orchestration framework of some kind. Something that can help you manage those things. From account management or resource container management, who does it belong to? Who's the owner? What stage of development life cycle is it? What's the cost center? Policy deployment, enforcement, management, remediation, notification. There's a number of capabilities and things that I need to help me establish that presence. And this just scratches the surface. It's not every single thing that I need. But I also need all of this with a number of capabilities. Billing management. What about my identity? My resource isolation? My security logs. I want immutable security logs. In fact, that was the very first capability we could think of. Immutable security logs. Because we wanted to know what happened anywhere in our environment at any time. And even if something has gone wrong, who did it? When did it happen? How? What were the source IPs? Network connectivity. So if I've got that many resource containers 
and these capabilities, and that many people trying to access things, to really achieve it, we want it to be automated, scalable, self-service as much as possible. Because if we become the blockers, it becomes harder to adapt and move forward. And many security organizations tend to focus with the blockers approach. But with the cloud, with the automations, with the remediations we can do, the automations we can put in place, the ability to put guardrails in place to control what happens and do quick remediation, possibly within seconds or minutes. We want it to be audible, back to that immutable security log that I described. We want to know exactly what happened, when, who did it, why. And back to what I said before, having that flexibility. So I can iterate over time and move forward. And as many of our customers start establishing Cloud Center of Excellence, one of the key things that we talk to them about is the ability to look at the rest of the organization as their customers and being able to provide products and services to help them move forward. Of course, securely and maintaining the governance. And if you're regulated, making sure we're regulating our regulatory obligations. In fact, when we came up with the idea for the security log archive account, which I'll talk about in a minute, one of the key contributors was somebody who lives with compliance all the time to make sure it's our single source of truth. So ultimately what we need is a landing zone, a lowercase landing zone. And again, for those of you who are new, you may not have heard of this. For those of you that have been with us for some time, you've heard the term landing zone. Secure pre-configured environment. It's those things that I've just described. You've also may have heard about the AWS landing zone solution. Last year, we released this solution, AWS Landing Zone, that was a set of cloud formation templates that created a code pipeline and a number of other things within your environment to help you orchestrate and build AWS accounts or resource containers. Our customers responded in a very positive way to it. And they wanted more, and we wanted to make it easier. So we pre-announced AWS Control Tower at reInvent last year, which, while it is a number of things, it came out because it is a managed service version of the AWS landing zone, where you don't have to deploy it. You don't have to worry about the operational overhead of going in and launching that or updating the code. You have a service that we manage on your behalf that helps you manage those accounts and build it. So from a definitions perspective, those are the three general terms that we see. In fact, when you look at Control Tower's documentation, it will tell you it implements a landing zone. It's referring to the lowercase landing zone up there. I do apologize for our lack of foresight and naming everything properly, but it's here we are, and I want to make sure that we try and address it and it's clear to everybody. So let's talk about the architecture. A few quick background information. Service control policies. I want the ability to apply policies at a resource container level that can override anything else within that resource container. And for those of you familiar with database accounts, including the root account. Service control policies allow you to do that. You can apply them at the master account level, and it allows you to control and set privileges on all the member accounts within that organization. So I can override them. In fact, I can apply policies that disable any API I won't be using. So for example, one that we recommend is on an entire organization, deny the ability for anyone to disable CloudTrail. CloudTrail is that log of the API calls happening within your environment. You don't want anyone to be able to disable that even if they're compromised or even if there's an issue there. Then within an organization, you can create a grouping 
of accounts or a set of resource containers. Don't think of this, at least our best practice and recommendation, don't think of this as mirroring your corporate structure or your organizational structure within whatever institution you're in. It is a grouping of a set of AWS accounts based on how likely we believe those policies to be different from another group. So the question to ask is how likely is this group to need a similar set of policies? Going back to the principles, that was one of the other principles that we put in place as we came up with this, is how do we reduce the number of possible groupings as well as the depth of that tree within the groupings? Because from an operational perspective, we want it to be as simple as possible to manage and troubleshoot and know exactly when something is happening or why something doesn't have access or something is denied. There's very few places that I can go to to find that out. So let's talk about the actual structure itself. I start with that database organization's master account. Those capabilities, service control policies, OUs, are part of that organization's master account. It's not connected to your data center in any way. It hosts those organizational units. It hosts the service control policies. Minimal resources, if any, should be owned by somebody responsible for the security and integrity of your data within your organization. Because it is a powerful account. It hosts a number of things within it. And it can potentially apply policies. And the org's role that it has, we want to restrict that very much. Then once I've got that, that's my root of my tree, I think about the foundational things that I need. So let's go back to the question I asked in the beginning. If you're being asked how to establish your cloud presence, what are the things off the top of your head that you start thinking about to get you going? So we talked about immutable security logs. Well, I probably need someplace to store them. I need these foundational components that help me get to what I need so that I can build the rest of my resource containers and those dependencies are there. They're the building blocks that I need. And generally, they're once for my whole company. So we start with the idea of a grouping around security and a grouping around infrastructure. And for each of those, I'm likely going to have a development life cycle of some kind because I don't want to make every single change to my security one in production. So back to one of the principles. We wanted to reduce the depth of that tree, the number of places I need to look at to identify a potential thing. So under security, you've got pre-prod and prod. Under infrastructure, you've got pre-prod and prod, or SDLC as you see it up there. The idea is you might have the same set of policies around all your pre-prod environments, in which case you need a single OU, put, them, put all the resource containers under there, and it's fine. If you've got different policies between pre-prod and dev and alpha and beta, then you could span that out. That's a decision point that you would make. But the principle is the groupings. So for those security logs, we've got the log archive. Again, it's a resource container. It's an account in this context. Version Amazon S3 bucket, lock it down, read-only access. In fact, I would alarm if somebody ever logs into that account because nobody should ever be logging. Tooling should not be running in that account. It is your single source of truth. It is one of the most critical accounts that you have. We want the security logs to be sitting there and shipped from every single account into this one. And that's what allows me to do it. If I want to go and run searches on it, index it, I would have a separate account that's running some tooling in it that has read-only access to index, archive, and make it searchable. But it's our single source of truth. Back to that regulatory requirement. I want to be able to say, this is my source of truth. 
If there's something that goes wrong in one of the accounts, they can't go in and turn off their CloudTrail or go in and delete them. One of the first things I would do if I, manage, if I were trying to break into a system is delete the logs. I don't want you to know what I've been doing or what I've been up to. From there, our security teams. How do I know what's going on within my environment? How do I look and find things that might be issues? So we start with the security accounts. It enables their operational teams. It enables the overall security of the organization. And there are three accounts in that space. Security read-only, break glass, and tooling. So security read-only is to allow us to view and scan resources in every other resource container with cross-account access. But it's read-only. For those of you that have been with us in the past, we used to have a single security account as part of that guidance that we had there. And our guidance was create two roles, one for the read, one for the read-write, and restrict the access. We had a number of debates over the last few months, and one of the key messages that we came out with is we wanted to make sure that any kind of read-write or write access specifically all came from one place, all came from one account, so I can at least track it and log it and figure out what's going on. I can respond just purely on that. So we decided that it makes sense to split it out to reduce the number of, the chances of something going wrong. So it's the read-only access to everything else. Exploratory security testing. This is for the humans that are part of the security organization. Now what happens if something does go wrong? That's where security black break glass comes in. For those of you not familiar, it's like when you go on a train and you've got that glass panel, you hit with a hammer and pull the alarm to stop. Or older buildings, that's how you pull the alarm to set the fire, fire, fire alarm. Not setting the fire, set the fire alarm. So it's the break glass account. Extremely limited access. I know exactly that that source is coming in from. It's the response in case of an event or an incident. Should almost be never, should never almost be used. In fact, if anybody is using it, it should be alarming, which is good. Everybody should know there's an incident. Something is going on. Somebody is in there, and we know they're in there because they're trying to respond to an incident. But it's a security break glass, break glass account, and it's available for that. And again, even more limited access. Now what about your security tooling? Things that scan for open security groups, or look for misconfigured policies, or somebody who attached an internet gateway with the wrong IP addresses, or just attached an internet gateway at all, or a security group that's open to the world on a database port that makes no sense. Those tooling and those things are running in the security tooling account. There are no humans in this account. Things like Security Hub, AWS Config Aggregation, or there's an open source product or something that you're using from another partner. Run from there. Now somebody brought up the question, what if I've got something like a Dome 9 or one of those other tools that go in and do the scanning, in which case I'm giving them a read-only role of some kind to read things and scan it. Well, the reality is they're running from their own account, most likely. And what you're giving them is a read-only access. So from a mental model perspective, they are a form of a security tooling account. It just happens to be sitting somewhere else. So that's the mental model up around it. And even though there's only three here, you might have seven different security tooling accounts because it makes sense to do so. Because it's no longer a thing to create those accounts. And again, no humans, these are the automations. And again, let's go back to the question. What's the next thing you think about if you're forming this foundational blocks? Are there shared services that you might have? 
What about your directory services, your DNS? What about things like your deployment tools? Or if you're going to build golden machine images, where do you put them? Scanning infrastructure, looking for inactive instances, or instances that have almost no utilization at all, or improper tags. There's a whole bunch of things that are common shared services that you might want to consider. So the idea of shared services encompasses that. And again, even though it's one account there, it might be a number of different accounts that provide different levels of access and owned by different groups that might be responsible for it. One of the capabilities we saw earlier was network connectivity. Unless you are a startup and starting from scratch and have no nothing or no other infrastructure, you likely have something running somewhere, likely in a physical data center that you might own or lease. And given that moving to the cloud isn't as simple as flipping a button and everything can be moved in one day, we believe that for some time you likely want hybrid connectivity or hybrid operational models. So we need networking. So there's the idea of a network resource container or a network account. I have my networking infrastructure in there, whether it's a direct connect or a VPN connection. If it's direct connect, I can spin out VIFs, virtual interfaces, or my transit gateway. Or if I decide to set up a shared VPC, and for those of you who don't know, you can create a VPC in one account and share out subnets to other accounts to launch resources in it. I would create that in the network account and share out those subnets. The exact decisions around how you set up the networking and all of that, we're not gonna talk too much about in this session, but it's something that we're very actively working on. What's our very specific prescriptive guidance to help you go down that path? But you do have a number of options there. And again, the network team would own that because you want to minimize the number of issues with the network. If somebody goes in that doesn't know what they're doing and misconfigures something, could block access to every application that you have. Or if using Transit Gateway, they could put the wrong route in there and block accessibility from all your customers. So now we've taken care of the foundational things. What's next? What about my development teams? What about the places where you can experiment and build things? So we start out with Sandbox, and every blue box you will see here is an organizational unit. We've actually gone as far as making sure that we double check the spelling, whether it's uppercase, lowercase, spaces or no spaces, and we did have a one-hour call primarily focused on making sure we have every name the way we think makes sense, because we want to make sure this guidance is as accurate as possible. And as one of my colleagues put it, we want to give you guidance that lasts for years with the right principles so that we continue to iterate and move forward and we don't violate it. So the next one was Sandbox. These are the play accounts. We're recommending every developer has one. It's not connected to anything. There's a fixed spending limit, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 100, or if you really like your developers, maybe it's 20,000. That's your decision. But now each developer is individually accountable for their spend within their environment. They can learn, they can iterate, they can go figure things out, download the latest open source packages, put things in place, and learn. And in fact, that's probably where some of your initial accounts are going to be. And if you're just starting out, you probably have a few accounts around where it's the wild, wild west. That's probably where they will end up, under that sandbox OU. It's autonomous, each one. But you get the visibility down to individual developer. Some customers create one and put a whole bunch of developers in there, but then you lose that individual accountability of knowing who put, who's created what. Then what about our workloads? 
This is another one that took us some time to come up with the name. We had a number of candidates for the name, but we wanted to account for every single possibility. Whether you're a government institution, education, hospital, business, ultimately, you're doing products of some kind or a workload that you're deploying. So we've called it workloads. This hosts the workloads in whatever form you define it within your institution. And they're based on the level of isolation. And we want to match your development life cycle. So my development environment shouldn't be able to make changes to my pre-prod, and my pre-prod shouldn't be able to make changes to my prod, and I want to keep those things isolated with the appropriate level of access. So for this one, we want to think small. What's the smallest unit that we can do? And we match our development lifecycle. So we start with the dev resource container. That's our development, our collaboration space. It is just a stage of the development lifecycle. That's where we build our applications, try them out. Once we've decided they make sense, from there they will get promoted to a pre-prod environment of some kind. Now I only show a single pre-prod here. But if you've got alpha, beta, gamma, pre-prod, zeta, whatever you have, you match that. That could be one or more. And that's where I deploy those things. This one is likely connected to your data center of some kind, to a non-production network matching the level of isolation needed for that. It's your staging. And once I've tested it and ran it in there, there's production. And like I said, you could have had five stages in between. That's entirely how you build it out within your organization. And this one would likely be connected to your data center environment, your production network, it's your production application, and I am hoping that for most of you, that's being promoted from pre-prod and not being deployed there directly. But that's the idea. We want to match the development lifecycle. Extremely limited access, and in some customers' cases, no development teams are ever allowed to be able to log into that because they might be subject to regulatory programs or they're part of a banking institution. Or it's the policy they've chosen to do because it makes sense to keep those systems stable. Hopefully, it's automated deployment. And if I were just starting out, and I'm trying to build out my presence on AWS, and to answer that initial question, I might stop here. I've got my starter multi-account framework. I've got my foundational stuff, security, my shared services under infrastructure. I've got my sandbox, and I've got my workloads. And I can potentially stop here. So the innovation pipeline would look something like this. I might have some developer accounts. From there, I go into a POC account of some kind and then follow the development lifecycle. Or I could just skip that POC step in between. And for many customers, it's not needed. And then I match the development lifecycle. And using that starter framework, I've got my basic environment set up and ready to go. Now, on day one, that could be sufficient. And it gets me started. That's another principle that we discovered as we went through this process is we don't believe every single customer will even get to every single thing that we're about to show you. And in some cases, they may choose not to launch any of them, or some of them at least. The next one we thought about is, we talked a lot about OUs and applying policies. We need some place to test them. So we're recommending a policy staging organizational unit. Its purpose is to test policies, particularly service control policies. So test it on a single account under there. Looks good, promote it to an OU under the policy staging. 
If it looks good, I promote it to the appropriate OU that I need to go to. Now back to the operational thing that we talked about earlier. We are recommending that all of your organizational unit policies, the SCPs, are sitting on OUs, not individual accounts. And the reason for that is, operationally speaking, it is much easier to be able to know, I know that all of these things will have only policies at the OU level. So now I can go only troubleshoot and look there, not on individual accounts where I have to go all over the place. So even though the underlying service database organization supports it, and it supports a depth of up to six, we were intentional to saying we didn't want to go any more than two, and we wanted to make sure OUs are applied, policies are applied at the OU level because it operationally makes it easier for us. And it allows us to troubleshoot issues more easily. Now, I've got my policy staging. It also reduces the need for a second AWS organization's master. There are cases for that, and we'll talk about it later, but it allows me to have all of that sitting in one place. Now, if you remember on that diagram with all the resource container at the bottom right, what happens when somebody leaves your company? What happens when you don't need an account anymore? Well, you suspend it. When you close an AWS account, it takes 90 days for that account to officially completely disappear. Also, what happens if somebody is on bad terms or somebody accidentally somehow recreates an account or relaunches one that you don't want to use or reactivates it because it's tied to their email address, even if they still work for your company? But from your perspective, that should have been suspended. So the suspended OU is a place where you host those things. It has a policy that denies all actions on that account. And it could be an individual account, whether it's from a developer or an application, or somebody who left, or just a project that you don't need anymore. One key principle here, we want to know where that account came from. Because once you move it, it's sitting there under the OU, and you don't have the visibility to where it came from, unless you go through CloudTrail, find the exact API call that did it to identify what happened. So we recommend that you tag that account of some, some, some way. Whether you use AWS organization's tags, or you've got a metadata store somewhere, it doesn't matter. So long as you can trace it back and know where it came from. The recommendation is the organization's tags, because it'll be right there on the account, and you can access it that way. The next one. Somewhat controversial. Individual business users. Well, why would you want have business users with a full access to AWS account? We asked the same question, too, and we struggled with it. But in some cases, you might have a marketing team that's got a promotional video. They want to share it with a partner or get it from a partner somewhere. Maybe they need access to an S3 bucket of some kind to do this. There's an approval process. There's reporting on it and all of those things. And they might have just a use case for there. Initially, we had it under the sandbox OU, thinking individual users, and there's a sandbox. But then we recognized that the user profile and behavior of a developer in the sandbox is very different from the individual business user. And back to the principle, we wanted to have the policies that are in common that make sense together. So we've decided to separate this one out into its own OU. Now, I know for some customers, they probably will never do this. Or they'll build the tooling that, are, that these users need to share a file or do something, or there's strict processes around it. But again, we want to make it part of the framework, and customers can choose to do it. And if you notice, we didn't put spaces or anything back again. We wanted to, if you're building automations or developing things around this, we wanted to make it easier for development tools to be able to do this. So we were very intentional about no spaces allowed in the OU names. Now, you've done all of this, and you've mirrored, you've thought about it very well, 
and you've designed it all, and I am sure in every one of your organizations, there's no one that'll ever come along and say, I have another use case and it's different from everything you've done. I'm sure that never happens. We decided that it might, so we've accounted for it by creating an exceptions OU. And remember I mentioned all your OUs, or your policies are applied at the OUs before? That's true, with the exception of the exceptions OU. So in the exceptions OU, no policy is applied at the top level OU. It's applied at the individual accounts. Back to the operational burden that we want to make sure that we minimize. If it's in exceptions, I go look at the account. If it's anywhere else, I look at the OU. And these should be pre-approved. There is a process around getting them. If most of your accounts are falling into exceptions, you didn't figure out your OU structure properly. Or maybe you had something that's too strict in one of your SCPs that you probably should release or relax. There shouldn't be many things sitting under exceptions. They are applied to the account, and it's there. Now, this one is one of the more advanced ones, the idea of how do I deploy my applications? For many of you, you might be doing it already on-premise today with some kind of a deployment pipeline that you have. You check in your code, builds it, deploys it somewhere. But again, we're looking for the future. We want it to have the guidance that lasts a few years. So if you were to going, going to build this out and possibly be ultra-paranoid about it, how would you do it? So there's a deployment OU. And again, the decision point on why we built it as a separate OU is because we believe, in the words of somebody I know that works with a number of government agencies, the deployments accounts are a high value target. If somebody has access to those, they can inject some piece of code anywhere so that the next deployment of every single one of your applications includes malicious code or backdoors and need access to anything. So we decided it makes sense to be its own deployments OU because we can keep an eye on those and be more strict about them. And if I extrapolate that a little bit more, the more advanced use case of this is I am building one deployment account for every set of accounts for a single workload. So my product one might have dev, pre-prod, and prod, and I've got a corresponding deployment account for it. Now, again, for many people, that is not a day one thing. And then what I end up with is this diagram. These are all the OUs that we've talked about so far. And it is left to right. And my pre-prod and prod, we made a decision that they were applicable for security, for infrastructure, and for workloads. So I can have my development lifecycle under it, no more than a depth of two. And this is a journey. This is a left to right approach, and you as a customer would start from the left and eventually move to the right. And for some of these, you may never create. So individual business users might be something you never create for your organization. Or deployments, because you choose to do it from on-prem, maybe you don't do that that way. But that's the mental model and the framework. So for those of you that have been with us since 2016, when we started to put out some of this guidance, last year, 2018, we had presented this diagram. I'm waiting one second for people to take pictures so I don't get a bad note that there wasn't enough time to take a picture. <laughs> so in 2018, we presented this. And if you look at it, 
looks very different. Doesn't have specific OU names, but that was the thing that we presented. It was a concept of core accounts, team slash group accounts, and developer accounts. So what you see as core is now split up into the security OU and the infrastructure OU. What you saw as team slash groups is now called workloads because we found that team or slash group could represent groups that are thousands of people within a company. And we wanted to be more specific about what these things are. And the one that was developer is now called sandbox. So the reality is we didn't change a lot. What we did is we figured out how the policies would deploy and we wanted to be more specific about the names of the OUs and things. I was talking to a customer yesterday and he, made, he said something that made me think. He said, I'm gonna go do exactly what you guys did. I'm gonna follow the exact naming convention because then when I go talk to your support teams and ask a question, we all are speaking the same language. So I'm not suggesting go use the same names. You can rename workloads to be products if that's your company. But I thought that was a really good point, that it gives us one common language. And to give you an idea, the team that's working on building this guidance is a cross-functional team across many of our services. AWS organizations, AWS control tower, our well-architected team, our solution architecture, professional services, AWS managed services, and a number of others that I'm sure will be upset with me that I didn't mention their names, but we have a number of teams that are working on this to make sure that we as AWS are giving you one common single message on how this should be. I alluded a little bit earlier about the security log flow. This is what it would look like. All the security logs are going into the log archive account. It was hard to represent that on that other diagram, so we stuck with this one. Network connectivity. You're likely going to have something that looks like this. Your pre-prod is connected to your data center to a pre-prod network. Your prod is connected to the production network, and so on. Now, this is all good. This is all guidance. This all tells me what I need to do, how to think about it. And we wanted to make sure you understood that because that allows you to ask us the right questions. Ask yourselves and your partners the right questions. And give you an idea of what we think is the path forward for you to challenge us. What have we missed? What could we be adding? And feel free to use the feedback form today in the, free, in the text section. Just add other ideas or things you think we may have missed. And I promise you it will all get looked at and we'll figure out ways to make sure that it gets addressed. Now, how do you implement this? One option is you can go take this, build everything from scratch yourself, write all the code, spend the next few months building it out, and you'll be ready to go. But we didn't want to just leave you with that. So there's a number of services that we have within AWS that helps enable that. There's also a number of partner products. But since I'm more familiar with AWS ones, that's what I'll talk about. AWS Control Tower, as I defined earlier, was built specifically to help customers establish their multi-account or multi-resource container environment. AWS organizations underpins it all. Config allows us to check for the state of things. So if I start with AWS organizations, I can manage and define my organizations and accounts as we talked before. I can audit and monitor, secure my environment, put my policies in place, centrally manage cost, AWS Control Tower, in our terminology, is an abstraction service. It does automations and orchestrations around a number of other services that we have. So when you create, when you launch AWS Control Tower, it will set up that log archive account for you. It'll set up one initial security account. It will set up what's called an account factory. 
So each time you launch account factory, it creates an account, which means it uses the AWS organization's APIs to create the account, and then does a number of configurations, including making sure that the security logs for CloudTrail get shipped to the log archive account. So you get the automations around some of these practices right from day one. I'm not gonna read every single thing, but that's a rough idea of what AWS Control Tower offers you. There's a number of sessions that were delivered to this reInvent about AWS Control Tower specifically. Feel free to find those and work with the team. And feel free to connect with us and ask us questions. So if I go back to the starter framework, we have our shared services, we have security, infrastructure, OUs, sandbox, workloads. And once again, if I'm starting out, I start out with this. Here's what Control Tower does for you. It creates the Log Archive account. It creates one security account that for now has a name Audit, but that's something we're working on changing. And we wanted to answer the question of what next. What next is now you go you use it to create additional OUs, additional accounts that reflect these principles and the best practices that we just spoke about. Now, you've heard about AWS Landing Zone Solution, or some of you have. If you've never heard about the AWS Landing Zone Solution, don't listen for the next two minutes. For those of you that have, last year, about early to mid-year, we launched what we called the AWS Landing Zone Solution. And it was intended, it did exactly what I just described as Control Tower doing, which is create the log account, the log archive, create the security account, set up what was called an account vending machine instead of an account factory. I can use it to spin up accounts. And then we decided, well, this is great. Let's build AWS Control Tower. We thought we did this. Give you one path forward. The reality is it turned out to be a bit more like this which is why I've had to define landing zone, AWS landing zone, AWS control tower, so many times to so many different people, even within our own organization, to try and make sure we're all aligned on a common set of terminology. This picture, is, by the way, is the entrance to the Aria and Vidara and everything right down there. So let me give you some context. So we started with this baseline of security and governance. We wanna build things out to help our customers have a secure presence in the cloud. At the foundation of it was the guidance, which you might have heard of before as multi-account strategy, multi-account team, multi-account framework. There's a whole number of names that came up over the years. In fact, the 2016 presentation was architecting security and governance across a multi-account strategy instead of across your landing zone. So that's the guidance. That's the team I described that's working together to deliver this guidance to you. Then from there, there was the implementation. Whether you work with the solutions architects or professional services or a partner to help advise you, it's there. So you might have built your own. Or you had a partner build it. Or you took the AWS Landing Zone solution when we launched it and launched that to use that as the base of your implementation and tweaked it and modified it. Or the other option now is AWS Control Tower. Then from there, the next one is, how do I operate all of this stuff? What about patching my operating systems, keeping my CVs in check? That's infrastructure operations. So again, you could have chosen to do that, you as a customer, or you had a managed service provider. Or from an AWS perspective, we have AMS, AWS Managed Services. If what you're looking for is an ITIL compliant request for change based process that gives you access to its own console but not the rest of the AWS experience, 
and there are some workloads that do require that or need that, AMS is a great fit. You can create a request for change to create a server or get access to a server, build compliant and regulated workloads, but it gives you that ITIL compliant RFC process that you can potentially use. But it's an option that you have or use an MSP or you build it yourself. Then from there, applications. I need to operate those as well. That could be your custom, your own operations team, a managed service provider, or as many people have told me, is I can use DevOps and DevSecOps and it will solve all the problems of the world and I can have a very good operating model that way. Which for some applications, of course, is true. For many, it may not be. And it might take us years to get there. But it is also an option for some things. So that's the overall context of how all of this stuff hopefully fits together. And I'm hoping that by the end of this talk, or at least at this point, some of this is starting to make sense and click. For those of you that never heard of this stuff or weren't confused about AWS Landing Zone and AWS Control Tower, I apologize for confusing you now by explaining it, but we'll continue to move forward. Now, recommendations. Some question, again, that comes up from customers that have seen this is, what do I do now? You have all of these options. I might have started building my own landing zone before you guys release Control Tower. It doesn't have features, or what does that look like? So I wanted to give you, again, a single message and an approach that we recommend that we think makes sense. So if you are a new customer that hasn't launched your presence before, or you're not happy with what you have, and you want to start from scratch and using a foundation that we believe is a good one, start by evaluating AWS Control Tower. Use its out-of-the-box guardrails and blueprints. Use the Control Tower account factory to launch things. If you are an existing customer, Control Tower actually just launched the ability to have CloudWatch events that give you a notification when it's done baselining an account. So for those customers that, for whom Control Tower wasn't enough on its own, or they want to deploy additional things, they can take that notification and take an action. That was one of the key features that was missing that didn't allow us to be able to say, well, Control Tower can replace AWS Landing Zone. So that notification is out, and we are working on a reference implementation for an extensibility framework that leverages those things. That should be coming out shortly, and that would allow you to take it and use it, and we'll have a number of add-ons and a library of add-ons that you can use, including integration with other directories or other things that you might have. There's a beta that you contact your account team and work with them to use Control Tower in an existing AWS organization. So one of the limitations on AWS Control Tower today is you must create it in a new account and launch it, and it will take care of ensuring that it turns on AWS organizations. In fact, if it's turned on, it just tells you I'm not going to do it. So there's a beta to enable you to activate it in existing AWS organizations. Now, if you are a current AWS Landing Zone customer, there will be a new version that allows you to upgrade. That new version will remove the code that AWS Landing Zone has in there for creating log archive security, the account vending machine. And it would rely on that functionality that's part of Control Tower. So it take care of activating that and helps you as a transitionary step to move toward Control Tower. And that extensibility framework that I just described in the previous bullet is essentially the same thing that AWS Landing Zone is turning into. It becomes this extensibility framework around 
AWS Control Tower so you can build out what you want and extend it as you move forward. Now, one thing that's not on this slide is if you are an existing customer and you've built an orchestration framework already to help you manage this and build it out, and you're happy with it, and if it works for you, and you're willing to spend the time and effort to build it, or operationally you're managing it, you've got a good place, continue to use it. We'll continue to give you the guidance, we'll continue to update things and explain here's where we think things should go. Another question that comes up, well, if I've got something already, how do I move it into this model, or what do I need to do? So I'll give you that by answering another question. So one area of guidance that I didn't specifically go into because we thought it was a bit too much for this session is if you are an organization or a company that acquires another company, and they happen to be an AWS customer, what do you do? Where do you put them within that OU structure? So the recommendation is you create a new organizational unit called, let's say, Acquisition A, with no policies on that OU. Bring in all their accounts under that OU because you don't know what they're using. And maybe you as a company chose, Kinesis is not allowed to ever be used, but they use it all everywhere. So you create that new OU, you bring their accounts under that OU, now at least you've got it within your overall organizational setup under AWS organizations or AWS control tower. And then it becomes a migration project to figure out where they'd go. So our workload stuff will move under, under workloads. Same thing for this model. If you've already done something and you have it in place, I would treat it almost like an acquisition. If you choose to establish a new AWS control tower presence or a landing zone of some kind, I would treat that as an acquisition, bring things under there, and move things over. If you've already got an account that's receiving the security logs and you're comfortable with it, potentially use that. Or create a new one, enable the trails and everything to go to the new one, then turn it off from the other account, then copy the logs over. You'll have probably a little bit of overlap, but I personally would rather have some overlap than miss something. So to summarize, we talked about this multi-account framework. And we intentionally chose the word framework because we do fundamentally believe that some of what you will do may vary at least somewhat from this. But we wanted to try and account for every use case, as I said, including acquisitions. Another more advanced one that I'll mention briefly is if you are working for a company that happens to be, let's say, a conglomerate or a holding company where some of the business units are not going to be okay with you applying security policies at an OU level under workloads, this was the one exception we made to the depth of two, where we said in that scenario, I would add another level that represents the business lines under workloads. So you have workloads, then under it, I've got that. In that scenario, no SCP policy would be applied at the workloads level because they're not gonna be okay with it and that's the way the company or structure works. That's the only condition where we've ended up deciding that a third level may make sense, but even then, it's effectively two because policies can only, cannot be applied on one of them. So we get to this model overall for multi-account framework. You've got our security to host our security-related things, including log archive, security tooling, read write, uh, uh, break glass, as well as security read. Infrastructure to host things like our shared services, our network accounts, and anything else that we think is shared services. Any triangle you see on this diagram, by the way, is an account. If it's not a triangle in front of it, it's not an account or it's not a resource container. And then from there, our sandbox, our workloads, our policy testing and deployment, our suspended individual business users, exceptions, 
and deployments. And if you want to model out your development lifecycle, you've got the next level that you can add. Now, AWS Control Tower today, for example, does not support nested OUs. So we have a specific separate guidance that we'll be releasing soon that talks about how do you flatten it. It really ends up being as simple as taking infrastructure-prod or workloads-prod or pre-prod. That was another principle that we decided to do as we built out this guidance, is we knew that the guidance might actually offer things that some of our services don't support yet. But we made the decision that we didn't want to hold back the guidance or make it something different from what we would do otherwise so that you have the latest set of guidance so we don't come back and change it in a few months because something supports it. However, we do have a set of prescriptive things on how do you actually make it flat so that when the nested stuff is supported when you decide to do it, it's easier to make that move. And we will be publishing, these slides will be published hopefully by tomorrow, maybe the day after, as well as a recording of this session. And we are currently working on publishing a lot of this content and material, more in-depth white papers to help you have documents and things in place. We just had to prioritize getting the slides ready and the presentations for reInvent. And as I said, it's left to right, it takes some time. One common question I've gotten asked is, what are some of the gotchas or pitfalls? At least in my opinion and a few others that I've worked with, it's if you try and do every single one of these things on day one. Because the learnings that it takes from building the first few as you move through that process will help empower and enable the rest of them. And then you might end up in a situation where you're spending years or months building something that nobody has used yet, so we don't know it. So that starter one is kind of the foundational one to start, and these things will start to make sense. Another one is, how many landing zones should I create? And for those of you that have been paying attention, this is the lowercase landing zone. Well, I've got my primary production one, of course. Now keep in mind, the primary production one, like under workloads, I have prod and pre-prod. Those workloads and things are sitting in that primary production one. So everything I showed you, that still sits under the primary production. Even though I've got something that's called pre-prod, it's workloads pre-prod. But I'm talking about production for the orchestration framework itself. So the whole reason we pick resource containers and accounts is because they give us this highest level of isolation. I can go, something in this account is not gonna impact that one. But if I'm talking about the orchestration framework on top of it all, now it has the potential to impact hundreds of accounts or thousands or five. And if I have a typo or a mistake, I could potentially apply a policy to everything that locks everyone out. So where do you test that? We need a safe place to do it. So the idea of a dev or a QA or a test landing zone. That would be another organization's master using another deployment, for example, of AWS Control Tower, if that's what you're using. And that's where you test out the orchestration changes and that framework around it. A third one, that's a maybe. For some customers, they want to make sure there's at least a test one up and running all the time. So that if I'm making a change, I don't take things down. For some reason, they want one that's running all the time in addition to the production one. So, that is a maybe depending on whether that's a requirement or not for you. Forensics. If there's an incident and I want my forensics to be something external to my set of accounts that this, whoever it is, the bad actor isn't aware of, generally we're saying that that should be something separate and on the side with the appropriate level of access and tooling with extremely, extremely limited access, of course. Now, the reason I say maybe here isn't because I'm saying you shouldn't have it. I'm saying it may not necessarily be a full landing zone with all the bells and whistles that you see there. 
It might be something that's smaller, and that's where that comes in. It's a little bit too late to show you the slide, given that it's Thursday and it's almost the end of the day, but this is or was the landing zone track that we built around for you at this reInvent. So a number of these sessions have already been run, of course, but feel free to use this to search and find the recordings and work with this. So the members of the team I just described, the guidance that we built, put this track together for you, and you'll see in all of them the common set of slides you've seen here, the diagram all over the place, because we wanted to have one unified message and cover different aspects of it. So feel free to use this as you see fit. Ideas. We want to continue to iterate and build guidance. These are some of the top ideas that we have on our list where we need to provide guidance for our customers and, of course, eventually implementations and ways to do this. Take a look at this. As you fill out your surveys, if you see something that stands out to you that is really important to you or ideas that you don't see here or things that we've missed, please do add it in the text. And we'll, again, we'll look at it, review it, and figure out how to prioritize. To give you an idea, and you don't have to put it down, the networking guidance is the number one ask I've seen from everybody. So that is the number one we're going to work on. So feel free to put that as the network one or not, but regardless, that'll be the number one we work on. I hope you've learned something. I hope this is helpful as you build your cloud journey and establish your presence. Thank you again for being here, and safe travels home.